0: Welcome to another episode of Bringing Design Closer. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a service designer and founder of this is HCD and CEO of thisisdoing.com where we provide live online design and innovation classes providing training for service designers, design researchers, product managers, user experience designers, content designers and much much more. Today in the show we have Laura Kalbag, a wonderful designer and co-founder of Small Technology Foundation, an organisation focused on building a more rights-respecting web. They've produced some really great things and one of the tools that I use for them is a privacy tool called Better. Go check it out, I'll throw a link in the show notes. Anyway, we speak about lots of different things in this podcast and cover topics related to accessibility and its connectedness to privacy. I thoroughly love speaking to Laura. I have all links to all their websites and initiatives, including Laura's book called Accessibility for Everyone, by a Book Apart. Let's get into it. Laura Kalbag, a very warm welcome to Bringing Design Closer. How's it going? Thank
1: you for having me. It is going reasonably well. I mean, given the state given of the, the world climate. right now. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's slowly but surely we're, we're creeping back into uncharted territory, as they like to say in the news. Mm. We're both in Ireland, though. Um, we so are. we're both, We're both experiencing the same pandemic which is good because i've spoken to people recently and they're like oh it's not so bad over here and i'm like yeah well it's okay let's not talk about that
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> i think you're under tighter restrictions than we are because
0: yeah
1: slightly further north than us
0: yeah i know yeah we're getting close to that whole hitting level four thing i think it's it's only a matter of time before we get there but laura let's kick off let's tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do, because you've got a, an incredibly interesting background. How do yeah. you describe what you do?
1: You've really set me up there. <laughs> I've <it's> got, <laughs> got an interesting background. I'm the co-founder of Small Technology Foundation, which used to be called Indy. And what we do is we try to build rights-respecting alternatives to exploitative technology. We try to create technology that's for human welfare and not for profit for sort of yeah. greedy corporations we're not one of those mm-hmm. and so that involves or it involves all sorts of things including we build a tracker blocker app that blocks trackers across the web we mm-hmm. try to advocate for sort of more rights respecting technology we try to encourage people to build better stuff and also to encourage people are making regulation to make better regulation and one of the things that we're really focused on at the moment is trying to build those alternatives so trying to find sort of architectural solutions where we can actually build technology that people can use every day that respects their rights and doesn't exploit them
0: yeah it sounds like an easy job then (laughs) (laughs) you're busy there's lots of stuff going on
1: yeah and it means that i get to do a huge variety of things and i get to always Mm. be working on something that i care about which i think is something that a lot of people don't necessarily get to have so i think even though we're not going to be rich or Mm. have sort of fame or anything like that not really after that stuff i actually get to work on things that i care about every day which i think is one of the most rewarding things you can do
0: absolutely so to to just kind of surmise some of those things if you imagine you're at a well, do you remember what dinner parties or whatever like parties we, <laughs> we might have had before? And I know I go out to very rarely anyway, but normal parties and people would ask me what I do. And it's one of the most fear-filled questions for me. I'm like, I just do design is what I, I fall back to. I'm a designer. And you tell people what you've just said to me. And what are the common questions that you get after you tell people what you've just told me?
1: Yeah, how do you do those kinds of things? I think. And yeah. And what do you actually do? Yeah. So I would also, if people ask me, I'd say I'm a designer. Hmm. Even though my kind of design incorporates doing development, running the organization, doing the financial admin and stuff. Yeah. And writing, a lot of writing and a lot of speaking as well. So yeah. But all of those things I feel fall under designer. They're all part of.
0: Yeah, the same thing, the same family of things like, you know, but when you spoke there about creating products and creating things that I I guess are more ethically considered, what does that look like in terms of what problems are you trying to solve? Let's talk about the stuff there in the tech world where people may not be aware of what's currently happening. So what do you say to those people at those kind of events and those parties where where people are? kind of being awakened to the potential threat?
1: I say we look at the technology we use today, and most mm. of it's free. And yeah. we have to ask, why is it free? Because nothing is free to make. So how are they making money? Or how do they make money? And this could be your Facebook, it could be mm. Google, it could be things like Gmail, it could be Google search, it could be Instagram. And All of these and the vast majority of mainstream technology is making its money by harvesting your personal data and using it to target ads at you and making money that way or selling it and sharing it with other groups like insurance companies, even governments and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so it all comes down to the business model in mainstream technology. And even you'd say, oh, well, then I pay for services, so I pay for Spotify, so that's fine. But actually, Mm -hmm. even Spotify is doing the same. They're kind of having their cake and eating it too because you pay them money, but they're also harvesting your data. So paying for a service isn't even a guarantee that your data is not being used. And when it comes to things like Cambridge Analytica, the scandal that we had a couple of years ago where this organization was using data from Facebook in order to target people with propaganda, in order to try to sway elections. like We can see very quickly how the simplest like thing that we're doing, like profiles that we have and information mm. that we think we're sharing that is harmless, is actually having a threat to democracy. So I'm trying to work on building technology that doesn't do that, that can't be exploited in that way.
0: How do you determine if a service is doing what you're doing or what you're talking about, because I pay for a lot of the software that I use, you know, Zoom, for example, like which we spoke about before, I pay for the pro level on that. How would I know if they're leaking my data? How would I be able to find that information out?
1: One of the easiest ways of getting an understanding of what people are doing is reading their privacy policies. And that's the one thing that none of us do, even though the legal protections are entirely based on it. Like these companies get away with what they're doing because they say, well, they put it in the privacy policy and people are supposed to read it. They agreed to the terms and conditions. We all know nobody does that because they're impossible to read. They're written deliberately to be impossible to read. But especially with our work on better blocker, the tracker blocker we make, I spend a lot of time reading privacy policies to find out what trackers might be doing with the data. And you read through and you do get clues as to whether something is being shared, whether your data is being collected. They do have to say specifically legally in these privacy policies. And so they have things like, oh, well, we, we might share this with third parties. We might, they'll claim that personal data is often anonymized, which is something that is
0: hmm.
1: mostly technologically infeasible. Like you can't, any anonymous data can be de-anonymized mostly if it's compared with a comparable data set. And so you can read these privacy policies to get an inkling about what they're doing. And unless they specifically say that they are not sharing anything, you'd be Mm. wary of them.
0: Yeah, I don't use a blocker on my computer and I've got a VPN and stuff, but like it's something that I probably should look into. But for people who are listening who don't know what a blocker does, tell me what it really does at its core.
1: So most people will be familiar with what ad blockers do. And a lot of people use ad blockers. And what ad blockers do are they hide ads because people find ads annoying. You get an ad blocker, it hides them. We make a tracker blocker that's slightly different. So what we focus on is blocking trackers, which ends up blocking a lot of ads. And what we do is we go through and we give a list of rules to the browser and to say, look, if you find a script from this particular domain, block it. And what that results in is web pages load faster because they've not got a load of junk being attached mm. to them trying to track you. And they, it also is blocking things like analytics and stuff that can be trying to yeah. like get your personal information. And mm. it will also hide the majority of ads because the majority of ads are based on tracking. One of the things we don't do is we don't block what we consider to be ethical or rights-respecting ads because advertising isn't the problem. It's the tracking underneath that's the problem.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting because most people think that generally advertising is bad and I'm of the opinion, well, we've been advertising since the, the time we started to trade beyond value of just human interaction. Since the introduction of money, we've been advertising to our services to each other. I guess, like when, when you think about things like that, in terms of ad blocking and blocking the tracker tag that you, you've created, if you imagine that the whole world adopted that tag at the moment and it was successful and it was doing exactly what it was designed to do, what would the future look like then?
1: Well, we would have a lot more control over our own information. That's the main thing that we're aiming for is to have ownership and control over our personal information. Now, this would mean that businesses would need to find better, more ethical business models. They would need to find ways to run their businesses that doesn't rely on sort of very risky like harvesting data and sharing it because you get very little value out of things like, the targeted advertising, like tiny, tiny, like quantities of money that you'll make on those ads. And people spend a huge amount on them. And mm. it's, so it's not really a great return on investment most of the time. And so people do need to find different ways of funding the things they want to build, not building things specifically for tracking and targeting. Like no, that's not really a beneficial business model.
0: Yeah. One of the other things that we were chatting about before was accessibility and how it correlates and how it interrelates with privacy as well. I'm keen to get your thoughts on what that looks like and and how you see accessibility and privacy being being so deeply connected and intertwined.
1: Well, because accessibility and privacy are really two of my main focuses in my work, so I wrote a book. You literally wrote the
0: book. You literally wrote the book.
1: Well, a book uh, called Accessibility for Everyone. And the idea behind that was to try to encourage people who are building things for the web to have Mm -hmm. a greater understanding of how to build things more accessibly. So we're thinking in terms of making things accessible to disabled people who have particular impairments that affect their use of the web. So it might have been blind. So we want to make websites work for screen readers, which are an assistive technology that reads the screen So, that blind people can read the content. We want to add captions and things like that to videos so that people who are deaf can participate. We want to make our content clear and easy to read so that people who might have learning difficulties or don't have Mm. the same native language as the language of websites in find it easier to understand. So, all of the there's so many different considerations for accessibility. Mm. And so, with accessibility and privacy one of the biggest problems we have is that there are lots of privacy related tools but they are not accessible and they're not just not accessible to disabled people they're not accessible to anyone because Mm. so much of them need technical knowledge need a lot of time and resources to be able to set them up and so it means that privacy is expensive and it's only something that experts seem to be able to have access to and so I think that's a really important thing. And the other element is that with accessibility, a lot of accessibility tools are not ethical, have tracking built in, are built Mm. upon APIs that are sending data back to, say, Google. And so a lot of people are faced with the choice of, well, you can either have access to the same tools that everyone else has access to, Yeah. but you are going to have to give up your privacy in order to have that basic access. And I think that that's one of the things that winds me up the most is the the idea that it's okay and the lack of understanding that disabled people are often far more vulnerable to their personal data being shared. They are far more likely to be discriminated against, particularly by governments, uh, particularly by insurers. And their actual access to the internet is often so much more core to them being able to get things done and be able to yeah. participate in life. And so I yeah. think it's, it's really unethical that these companies do this, but also the fact that they want a pat on the back for making things for accessibility in the first place because they're like, oh, well, aren't we great? We're so generous yeah. giving all of these things to disabled people, which, by the way, we should all be doing by default anyway.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I was telling you before, I had this experience recently, as of a couple of weeks ago, where I'm giving a course and this is doing. And a member who had bought a ticket had sent me a message saying, listen, look, I'm I'm deaf. And I wonder, would you be able to send me the video files at the end of each session? And I'm like, what are you going to do with the video files? And they go, well, I send them off to get transcribed. And that's currently how they were working. So I spent a lot of time looking at integration with Zoom and how Zoom could potentially do subtitles. And if, if it can, and I couldn't find a way for it to do that. And then Zoom suggested that I speak with Otter as an integration. And of course, it was like, I think it was €1,200 Euros for the year to do live transcriptions on that. But it, it involves the host to do it. So I said, okay, well, let's take a bit of a hit on this. And maybe it's something I should be doing by default anyway. And I looked at the integration and OMG, oh, it was like, it took me about four hours, you know, all up sitting there trying to figure this stuff out because it was so complicated for me as well. And I'm, I'm pretty technical and I eventually got it to work trial and error after a couple of support emails. And I just said to them, I said, this is an absolute disgrace. I said, both of you, Zoom and both of you, Otter need to seriously fix this because if anybody who's not technically capable has to try and do this in order to get some sort of uh, decent service, it's just going to be so difficult and so expensive as well for them to do. Like it's something that Zoom should have been built in by default as far as I'm aware.
1: Well, that's it. If we build these things in by default, it would make a massive difference. Even if you think about things like Twitter and recently enabling by default being able to write alt text for images yeah. so you can write descriptions of your images for people that can't see them. And that was years and years of hassle to get them to do that. And still, they launched a new feature the other day with video. And are they enabling captions by default? No, of no. course they're not. Have they even designed for it? No, they haven't. No. They haven't learned <laughs>
0: Uh, it's it's like, you know, businesses, they put it into the too hard box. But what's interesting with that Zoom integration and the Otter integration is it transcribes the entire conversation. So people who are on that call as well, it's kind of, they rock up to the call. And even though I've told people that it's going to be live transcribed, the other people on the class kind of have to accept the fact that it's being live transcribed. And if they ask a question, it's going to live transcribe their question as well. So informed consent is is a little bit it, it gets into that whole kind of social area of kind of saying, Well, if I say no to this and I don't want to be recorded, that other person is penalized. So they don't get the live transcript, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it's it's one of these sort of areas where you, you can't design that experience for just the one person who needs it. It's all or nothing. And it's yeah. not it's not cool because Sometimes you just don't want to get recorded. You just want to sit there and do a class and you don't want to feel like some bot and some AI is tracking everything that you're going to say in the class.
1: Yeah. Although I think if you know that it has a limited output, that it's not going to be shared everywhere. I mean, even I think that people could be asked that maybe just their name be replaced Mm. so that it's not attributed to them. Like that's a if you don't want it to be found by search or something like that. I think there are ways around. That. Those things that can allow the benefits for the person who actually needs them the most.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of what you're working on now, Laura, what's the, the future looking like for Laura Kolbagg in the next, say, 12 months due to the pandemic?
1: Well, the next 12 months, we should hopefully have uh, SiteJS, which we've been working on, which is sort of a little tool. It's a, a tool belt, really, for people that want to build websites in order to build them that privacy respecting from the beginning and secure and fast and for personal websites specifically. And we've been working on, earl has been working on my partner at Small Technology Foundation. We've been, He's been working on getting all of that side up and running and making it so that you can really easily have a website that has all of the SSL certificates and everything for local development as well so all of this stuff up and running what I've been working on is building a theme that means that when you get started with SiteJS you can pick to have a blog or a photo blog or a website just a standard sort of page-based thing and you can have all of that set up for you in a way that is by default accessible that is by default respecting the privacy of the people who are visiting your site. So we not we don't have analytics and things like that built in. We have a nice, simple privacy policy built in that you can build on if you need to. And having all of that to make it really easy for people to set up their own rights respecting websites. So it means that if you want to have a blog that's not on Medium, but you don't feel like you have the time to work on building it or finding a service that you can use for it, you'll be able to do all of that with SiteJS.
0: What what would that look like? Because you've already got me interested now. What does that look like for me, who has worked as a front-end developer at some point in their career? And I'm like, yeah, that sounds cool. But it also sounds like it could be a lot of work and a lot of hassle for someone like me to try and get that set up. Can you tell me what that looks like?
1: Well, that's the idea. And we have a few layers planned. So the idea is that initially it will be really easy for people that have a little bit of front-end experience. So by no means a lot, because that's the whole point is we want it to be easy to use and accessible. And even if you do have loads of like technical programming experience and things like that, you don't want to spend your time setting up a blog. Like you don't, you might not have the time to do that. And so we're making it so that all you would have to do is say, like type into your command line, set up side.js, like install it. And then all you would type is site, new, blog. And then you've got a blog. And then what you can do is add the content for that. And at the moment, we're building it using Hugo, uh, which is a little sort of blogging content management system. But I have been doing a huge amount of work to try to make Hugo as straightforward and easy to use for people so that you don't have to really understand how it works. You just have to be able to write some content in Markdown and put it in some folders. And then it should just work.
0: Yeah. For someone like me, you lost me a command line.
1: (laughs) Well, and that's the thing. What we're aiming to do is the next stage is to be able to do it without that. So you should just be able to do that from the website. But a lot of people don't. like When I was started out, when I was doing designing, and even for a long time as a web developer, I was terrified Mm. of the command line because... it just it felt very powerful and I was (laughs) terrified that I would type in the wrong thing and to some degree I still am and uh, I've gained a little bit of confidence but I'm still terrified I'm going to accidentally type in something that will wipe my computer it's not easy but (laughs) somehow I would manage to do it
0: I know trust me I'm the same I remember I wiped wiped someone's git out when I was working on a a project and they're like I deleted everything but it's okay we have it all backed up and I'm like Oh man. And I, it didn't do me any favors because every time I went in, I used to type in like a git command and then I'd sit back and then I'd read it <laughs> and I'd make sure it was right and then I'd hit enter. So I was I, I never got never got beyond it. But like it's it's something that, you know, it's very powerful and it's it's very useful to be able to do it. But beyond that, in terms of servers and selection of servers and where your data lives, what's the best choice according to Laura?
1: Well oh, it's the best choice is to choose a like, a host that you can trust. And that's trust? really difficult. Hmm. Not many people. And yeah. one of the key features of Site.js is to be able to make it so that people can migrate. So if you don't yeah. trust one particular host, you can move to another one very quickly and easy without causing any trouble for yourself. Because all of it comes down to hosting really nowadays like that's the the one thing you have to be able to rely upon that and where you Mm -hmm. get your domain name from
0: so give us a shout out give us the name of who you host with and who you buy your domains with
1: we currently using eclipsis for our hosting and they're great because they have been providing us with free hosting because of the nature of our project and that's really cool although i think that a lot of their funding is currently under risk from the trump government at the moment in the whilst they're based in europe they're funding some of the funding comes from the us and obviously yeah. the open web is not necessarily something that trump wants funding and right now for domains we use a variety of things but actually a lot of the time we use i want my name which are based in new zealand but okay. uh, they have a very easy to use interface so it's very easy to buy stuff and to set stuff up it's okay. uh
0: yeah, absolutely good to give them a shout out so in terms of speaking gigs and stuff I see you're you're still quite active. You did something there recently last month on accessibility in where, where was that it was in New York was it the tech summit? I think I might
1: have uh, well, I did a five minute talk on accessibility, but it was very much online. <laughs> I wasn't going to New York for that um, I'm sure. Yeah, so I gave a talk on the state of accessibility in 2020 and part of that was talking about privacy and how, mm. especially when we're moving so much of our like, infrastructure online, they it was already a lot online, but when it came to the pandemic, suddenly things like schooling and a lot more work was moving online. And so how we needed to factor in privacy when we were thinking about these things and how mm. we weren't just trading it in for convenience, we were trying to actually spend the time to do the research to find the alternatives. It's not the easiest thing right now, but there are easy-to-use alternatives to a lot of the popular software. And if you just spend that little bit of extra time finding it, then you can set people up in good stead where things are accessible Mm. and their privacy is not being invaded.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to throw a link to that video into the show notes because it was good and I really enjoyed it. And I like it because oh, it wasn't, w- w- wasn't a, a hugely long video. And in my life at the moment with, with two young kids, it's a case of like, oh, great. Nice. I'll watch this. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll definitely throw a link that, to that one in the show notes. Laura, if, if people want to reach out to you and follow your, your kind of like, you know, what you're working on and stuff, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: It's probably my website, um, which is lauracalbag.com. Oh, um, yeah. It's K A L B A G. Yeah, it really is bag. That is really what it says at the end of my name.
0: <laughs> it's all right. And
1: a lot of people are a bit baffled by my surname.
0: <laughs> You're the the only one in the world. That's the, that's the main. The only one so.
1: in the world. It's the benefit of having a name, an English first name, and an Indian surname. Is I am the only one
0: in the world. Yeah, which is great. Great for search.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. My SEO is very strong. <laughs> Inbuilt, my, my parents <laughs> were thinking about it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'll throw a link to your website. And if there's any other projects that you want to throw in there as well from what we spoke about, they'll all be included in the show notes. Fantastic. Laura, it was great, great speaking with you today. Thanks so much for your time.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's been fun.
0: So there you have it. That's all for this episode of Bringing Design Closer. If you like this episode, feel free to visit thisishcd.com where you can access our back catalogue of over 100 episodes with episodes related to service design, product management, design research and much, much more. Now, if you're interested in design and innovation training, feel free to check out our business, thisisdoing.com where you can join online classrooms and learn from the world's best design and innovation leaders. Join the This Is HCD newsletter where you'll receive updates from the network. And also, if you're interested, apply to join the Slack community on thisishatecd.com. Stay safe and until next time, take care.